The following message is by Pastor Steve Lee of Emmanuel Community Church. More information about the ministry of Emmanuel Community Church can be found online at www.emmanuelcommunity.org. We're now in the fourth message in this Bible Project series, and I have to make a confession. These have been really challenging sermons to prep. Um, we're, we're trying to cover these enormous themes that span the entirety of Scripture, and I found it personally to be so hard to edit and edit and edit down into just a, a single message. Um, if I didn't set the whole schedule and sort of put us on a certain track, and if they weren't all tied to these uh, videos, uh, I swear these are the messages I'd be splitting and splitting and splitting, because I want to cover this image of God message in about four messages to be honest with you, but I, I'm going to do my best today to try to distill this teaching into a single message that hopefully uh, will tell just one story rather than feeling like I'm saying a hundred different things. And, and so I guess you could let me know if I was successful or not. Um, last week, I pointed out that one of the goals of the Bible Project series uh, is to see the big stories that are told in the Bible from Old Testament into New Testament. And as we begin to see what the big pictures are uh, more clearly, my hope is that it will dispel a lot of the unhealthy ways that we've come to understand the Bible story. Many people think that the primary mission in the Bible is to save people from going to hell and getting them into heaven. In a light of that, so much of our emphasis on making sure that people believe and confess the right things so that they will know where they go when they die. And so we've developed this tradition of walking people through what has come to be known as the sinner's prayer. And some churches even print out cards where you can write the date that you said the sinner's prayer to give yourself a certain sense of assurance that I know I'm saved now. Um, and it sort of becomes like an insurance card that you keep in your car uh, in case you ever get um, into an accident or pulled over by the police. Uh, and, you know, maybe some of what I'm saying right now is making some of you uncomfortable. Um, but the point I'm trying to make is this. It's, it's I think, similar to the confusion that you could have between a wedding and a marriage, okay? Um, in other words, if you put all of your planning into a wedding as a couple, but do nothing in terms of planning for all the years that are going to follow once that ceremony is over, then there's a very good likelihood that your relationship is headed into some trouble, right? Because a marriage, <coughs> sorry, a marriage is so much more than a wedding, isn't it? In the same way, God's mission is so much greater than simply rescuing souls out of hell and getting them into heaven. And really, not even heaven, right? Because in that heaven and earth, message we talked about, it's really a restored earth and not a heaven that's our destination even. Um, listen, 
it's important to have a right standing with God. I'm not knocking that. And God does want you to be with him forever. I'm not taking anything away from these truths. The point I'm trying to make, though, is that we have to locate these truths into a much bigger story. And I worry that often in our Christianity, we sort of got into this minimalistic mode of what is the minimal requirements needed to get into heaven when I die, and then how can I lead somebody into that process? It's like a litmus test. Like as if the picture we have of God is of a grand quiz giver, and he's going to test us at the end of life, and we got to make sure we're going to be able to pass that test when we stand before him as a judge. Um, if we think that the main point of our salvation is knowing where we're going to go when we die, we will miss out on so much of what the Bible teaches about the full picture of salvation. And I think one of the helpful ways of framing the big story that the Bible tells is to see it in four primary movements. Creation, fall, redemption, and restoration. And some of you may have come across this framework before. Uh, what's interesting is that, though, is this, that the first two movements are covered in only the opening three chapters of the Bible. Okay? Now, there are going to be other passages that look back at creation and fall, but almost the entire rest of the Bible focuses on God's mission to redeem us from that fall. And it is mixed in with some pictures of what the full restoration will look like one day, but by and large, the vast focus of the Bible is on the redemption piece of how God is going to restore fallen creation. And although they are very brief, only three chapters long in Genesis, they are packed with some of the most foundational truths about God's purpose for his creation. And without understanding that, where the beginnings were, then we cannot make sense of what the nature of God's rescue mission is for us that was broken by sin. And one of the most important of these truths is found in Genesis 1, 26 to 28. Then God said, let us make mankind in our image, in our likeness, so that they may rule over the fish in the sea and the birds in the sky, over the livestock and all the wild animals and over all the creatures that move along the ground. So God created mankind in his own image, in the image of God. He created them, male and female, he created them. God blessed them and said to them, Be fruitful and increase in number. Fill the earth and subdue it. Rule over the fish in the sea and the birds in the sky and over every living creature that moves on the ground. Of all the different creatures that God had made on earth, humans alone are given this image of God in them. And many have asked, well, what exactly does that mean? And some have maybe pointed to the fact that maybe it's because in many ways we may resemble the likeness of God in how we are made ourselves. So things like our creativity and ingenuity and inventiveness and things like that. Others have pointed to the fact that maybe it's asked to do more with a relational component, that we, of all creatures, were made to have a special fellowship with God. And that is why he has gifted us with the gift of speech, of language, so that we can talk to God and listen to him and receive his words. 
Well, I think there may be some truth to all of that. But if we actually look at the verse itself, the passage itself, I think it actually tells us what the meaning of being made in the image of God is. There is a tight connection between being image bearers of God and ruling over his creation. In other words, to be made in God's image means that we represent God, uh, our rule as a reflection of God's own rule over his creation. And this, as the video showed just a minute ago, was a radical idea in its day because in ancient times, only kings were considered to be made in God's image. And it's because they were God's image that they had the uh, justification to basically treat everyone else in their empire like slaves. You know, you could do whatever you want with impunity as a king. But now, Scripture comes along and says, listen, all of you, male and female, are made in the image of God, and you were designed by God to rule his creation. That was radical. It was radical then, and it's radical today. Now, this is where we have to dispel another idea that we assume comes from the Bible, but I'm going to argue is not really biblical. Many of us think that before sin entered our world, that it was in a state of perfection, where nothing ever went wrong. In that pre-sin world, there were no struggles, no difficulties or challenges, no conflict, no mosquitoes, no biting insects, no tectonic plates that could shift and cause an earthquake, no volcanoes that could spew lava. You could not break a bone or sprain an ankle or get a cut or a blister on your skin even if you wanted to. In other words, in that original creation, everything went exactly as you wanted it to, without any effort at all. So in our imagination, um, the Garden of Eden was like an endless vacation at an all-inclusive five-star resort where Adam and Eve have nothing to do but to frolic naked in this garden. They play hide-and-seek, and they wrestle with lion clubs, cubs and teach parrots how to say, praise the Lord, I don't know what else you do in all creation where there's no conflict and nothing to do really. But I would argue this. The Bible makes none of those claims. In the creation account, God does say that everything he made was good. He does say that. But he, but he doesn't say it was perfect. And when you actually look at that word perfect in both the Greek and the Hebrew, in the Old and New Testaments, what you discover about that word is that it is almost always in reference to this idea of something being completed. Completion is what the Bible defines as perfection. Nancy, and, and, and so what we could say about it is this. In that understanding then, creation was not perfect. It was not complete. And God expressly communicates that to us. Nancy Guthrie says this, Eden was bright and beautiful, and we tend to think of it in terms of perfection. But rather than thinking of Eden in terms of perfection, we should think of it in terms of potential. 
Certainly, Eden was pure and pristine, ordered and filled, but the Eden we read about in Genesis 1 and 2 wasn't yet everything God intended for his creation. It was unsullied but incomplete. From the beginning, very beginning, Eden was not meant to be static. It was headed somewhere. In other words, what the beginning pages of the Bible tell us is this, that God could have brought creation to a state of perfection or completion, but in an interesting decision, he actually chose not to do that. He left it incomplete, and amazing as it is to believe, the reason why he did this is because he wanted to complete creation with our partnership with our participation in that work. It's like a father who could easily build a cabinet by himself, but he chooses instead to turn it into a father-son project, working on it together. It would actually be easier and more efficient for the father just to do it himself, wouldn't it? But the joy of the father comes in his ability to build this with his child. And so it's interesting, rather than naming the animals himself, God brings Adam and says, why don't you give them names? (laughs) Name them whatever you want. And so in this very interesting invitation, God is basically giving that responsibility to humans to basically classify and bring to order his creation that he has made. Genesis 1.28, God blessed them and said to them, Be fruitful and increase in number. Fill the earth and subdue it. Rule over the fish in the sea and the birds in the sky and over every living creature that moves on the ground. If creation was perfect and complete, then there would be no need for God to tell us to subdue his creation, right? To subdue it. But Adam and Eve are commanded to subdue and rule over the earth. In an agricultural context, it's this picture of transforming wilderness into a cultivated garden or an orchard or a farm that can actually produce food to sustain a growing population. You know, many of us mistakenly think that before sin entered, the entire world was a garden of Eden, but it wasn't. It says instead that God created the world, and in that world, he placed the garden in a region called Eden. And that's very different. The implication is that outside of that garden, it was wilderness, and it needed to be subdued by humanity. That was a project. And here's the key thing. That was before sin entered our world, okay? That was God's plan all along from the very beginning, was that our world would be developed and cultivated and nurtured through human involvement. That is what it means to be made in the image of God. That was God's plan for us. You know, in Genesis 2, 5 through 6, there's this interesting detail. It says, Now no shrub had yet appeared on the earth, And no plant had yet sprung up, for the Lord God had not sent rain on the earth, and there was no one to work the ground. But streams came up from the earth and watered the whole surface of the ground. So we're told, interestingly, that the vegetation had not yet sprouted on earth because of two reasons. One was because rain had not happened yet. But then secondly, it says because humans were not yet created in order to plant the seeds and cultivate the land. It's this interesting idea. Did you catch that? It is before the fall, before sin 
had entered, God says, listen, this is my plan for man to enter into this creation and to cultivate it. God's plan, in other words, was never for us to live in an endless state of leisure, lounging around as bystanders to what he was doing in creation. His plan was that we would always be active participants in the work that he is doing in our world. And that is why we are said to have been made in his image. From the beginning, God intended us to be his image bearers, working under his leadership to develop and rule the earth with him. But as we saw in the very first lesson in the Bible project called the Tree of Life, Adam and Eve refused to follow God's plan for them. Instead, they chose to eat from this tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Eating that forbidden fruit represented something far greater than a lapse of self-control. It was a declaration that they didn't trust God and they didn't want his plan for their lives. Eating from that not tree of the knowledge of good and evil was a choice to live life on their own terms. According to their own wisdom, basically what it was was a declaration to God, we don't like your plan. We don't trust your plan. We're going to make our own plan and we're going to decide what's good for us, what's best for us. That's the sad story of humanity. Eating from that tree of the knowledge of good and evil was a choice to live life on our own terms rather than trusting him and obeying him. It was, I will decide what's best for me. And so here's the sad, tragic part of the story is that the completion of God's good creation as a project between God and man never took off, really never even got off the ground. Because rather than trusting and obeying God, we went our own way. And so the, great, the greatest tragedy of sin is not that we failed to keep God's rules, but that we've rejected our calling as his image bearers. That is the great tragedy of sin. Our decision to choose our own way to rely on our own wisdom, ended up proving disastrous for us. Because in the very next generation, after Adam and Eve, the first murder is already going to take place when Cain kills his brother Abel. And then just five generations after that, this guy Lamech shows up on the scene. And in his boastful song, he does something really ridiculous. God said that he would protect Cain from people seeking vengeance. And so it says, anyone kills Cain, I will avenge on him that death seven times. And look at what Lamech says in Genesis 4, 23 to 24. Lamech said to his wives, Ada and Zillah, listen to me, wives of Lamech, hear my words. Sounds like a great husband already, doesn't he? I have killed a man for wounding me, a young man for injuring me. If Cain is avenged seven times, then Lamech 77 times. Lamech's song reveals how swiftly sin has progressed in human, humanity in just a few generations. And as an act of mercy, God protects Cain through that promise. But Lamech twists God's words to boast, if anyone touches me, 77 times is what I will do. And Lamech is filled with such bloodlust that he is ready to kill, he even admits, at the slightest provocation 
That word he uses for young man is actually a word for a child. He says, I will even kill a child for just crossing my path the wrong way. And as sin continues, uh, it just says in Genesis 6, verse 5, the Lord saw how great the wickedness of the human race had become on the earth and that every inclination of the thoughts of the human heart was only evil all the time. As sin continues to run its course, the focus increasingly turns to the issue of idolatry. Idolatry. As I pointed out when I was uh, doing that idolatry series before the pandemic started, uh, you could even argue that idolatry is the defining sin of the Bible. At the heart of idolatry, as, I, as I've said before, is the giving ourselves in worship to anything other than God. And look at what the psalmist says happens when we worship idols. In Psalm 115, verse 4 to 8, But their idols are silver and gold made by human hands. They have mouths but cannot speak, eyes but cannot see. They have ears but cannot hear, noses but cannot smell. They have hands but cannot feel, feet but cannot walk, nor can they utter a sound with their throats. Those who make them will be like them. So will all who trust in them. Greg Beale elaborates on this biblical truth in his book, We Become What We Worship. All humans have been created to be reflecting beings, and they will reflect whatever they are ultimately committed to, whether the true God or some other object in the created order. What people revere they resemble, either for ruin or restoration. It's a frightening thought, isn't it? That we resemble what we worship. Our idols, in other words, distort God's image in us because we reflect whatever it is that we worship. In 2 Kings 17, verse 15, it says, they followed worthless idols and themselves became worthless. You become what you worship. This is how God built us, how we are designed. Whatever it is that we give our heart to, that is what we will become. And not only does the Bible tell us that our idols will mar this image of God in us, but it also tells us that these idol, idols enslave us. They enslave us. Galatians chapter 4, verse 8 says, Formerly, when you did not know God, you were slaves to those who by nature are not gods. What Paul is saying to the Galatians is, whatever it was, those idols that you gave your life to that are actually not real gods, they ended up enslaving you. And where it tells us elsewhere in the Bible is actually all other false gods are actually demonic activity, right? That's what the Bible actually says. And so our Idols promise to give us meaning and hope and happiness in life. But in the, day, in the end of the day, um, they will always leave us brokenhearted and empty and enslaved. Instead, they end up taking everything from us and delivering on none of their promises. And in the end, what has happened is that the image of God in us has been marred. You know, um, somebody once commented, going like, you know, I, I like how you use movie references, uh, but why these, like, 1940s Japanese classics or something like, can you actually pick something that I might be familiar with? And so 
the Lion King, okay? <laughs> All right. Um, in the 1994 animated Disney classic, The Lion King, it's a story about this little lion cub named Simba, born to his father Mufasa, who is the Lion King, the ruler of Pride Rock, right? And controls all the animals in the kingdom. But Simba gets into a bit of trouble, some serious trouble. And in the course of his father rescuing him, his father ends up actually being killed. And so Simba, as a young lion cub, runs away from home, guilt-ridden, that he has caused his own father's death. And while he's in this foreign land, he ends up befriending a warthog named Pumbaa and a meerkat named Timon. And I don't even know why I'm telling you all these details because I think you all know the story, right? Um, and they have this philosophy that Simba ends up adopting called Hakuna Matata, which in Swahili means what? Oh, you guys know Swahili, huh? Uh, yeah, it literally means no worries in Swahili, right? Um, and, you know, if you guys heard when Dr. Jerry Root was here speaking at a retreat, he actually talked about how he spoke at Disney once and actually discovered that there were a lot of Christians secretly <laughs> trying to tell Bible stories in these Disney films. And I think this Lion King is filled with gospel references. And I think that picture of Simba cavorting with <laughs> warthogs and meerkats, this lion eating grubs and insects, <laughs> is actually a really accurate picture of the tragedy of the fall. It is this picture that you are not living the life that you were intended to live. Your life, this Hakuna Matata life, is a tragedy. It's a tragic loss of your calling. And so it takes Simba's childhood friend Nala, who comes and finds him and confronts him and says, what are you doing here? Your family needs you, and you are the next Lion King. You're not supposed to be here. And that confrontation spend, sends Simba in this tailspin. And eventually this baboon named Rafiki, who was a friend of his father's, asks him to come and look at his reflection in this pool. And as he looks at his face, his, his reflection in this water, he suddenly sees an image of his father looking back at him. And then it's this vision that he converses with of his father. And Mufasa, his father says, you have forgotten me. You have forgotten me. And Simba says, no, how could I? And his father insists, you have forgotten who you are. And so you have forgotten me. Because you are more than what you have become. And Simba says, how can I go back? I am not what I used to be. And his father Mufasa says, remember who you are. You are my son and the one true king. I think that's actually a very good summary of what we find in the opening pages of the Bible. 
the great tragedy of the fall is not just that we broke some rules or succumbed to some temptations, but that we have rejected our calling to be image bearers of God and have chosen instead to allow the glory of God instead of shining in us to allow the distorted images of created things to be the things that we reflect in our life. And so the question is, how are we going to get out of this mess? How are we going to fix this? Well, God would accomplish the restorative work by sending his own son, Jesus Christ, into our world to die on our behalf. And we're told that Jesus is the perfect image of God. Colossians 1 verse 15 says the son is the image of the invisible God the firstborn over all creation. In other words, Jesus was able to do what none of us could do, and that was to perfectly bear the image of God in his own life. But what the Bible tells us is that God was not satisfied with that alone, but through his son, he wanted to restore in all of us the ability to once again fully bear the image of God in our lives. And one of the ways that Jesus accomplished this was that he came to set us free from the enslaving power of our idols. What the Bible tells us is this, that there are realms around us that are invisible to our eyes, but nevertheless are realities. And in these spiritual realms are dark powers and forces. And when we give ourselves to our idols, what we're actually doing in these spiritual realms is willingly enslaving ourselves to these demonic powers. But when Jesus came to the earth, he came to defeat these dark powers that were enslaving the world. And that is why the Gospels record such a huge uptick in demonic activity when Jesus arrives on the scene and why so much of his ministry was dominated by demon possession and casting out demons because it was clear that he had come to wage war against these powers and they didn't like it and they were threatened. And look at what happens in Luke chapter 11. Verse 17 to 22. Jesus knew their thoughts and said to them, any kingdom. So what's happening here is that, you know, he's casting out demons. And they're saying, you're doing this in the name of Beelzebub, the prince of demons. And Jesus says, that logic doesn't hold. And he says, Jesus knew their thoughts and said to them, any kingdom divided against itself will be ruined. And a house divided against itself will fall. If Satan is divided against himself, how can this kingdom stand? I say this because you claim that I drive out demons by Beelzebub. Now, if I drive out demons by Beelzebub, by whom do your followers drive them out? So then they will be your judges. But if I drive out demons by the finger of God, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. When a strong man, fully armed, guards his house, his possessions are safe. But when someone stronger attacks and overpowers him, he takes away the armor in which the man trusted and divides up his plunder. 
What Jesus is saying is this. You see these demons that I'm casting out of these people. This is a sign to you that Satan is being bound and we are plundering his house right now and that the days of Satan are numbered. I am breaking his back and releasing people from the bondage that he has held them in for thousands of years. Jesus was saying that through my ministry, Satan is being disarmed and God's victory over these dark powers is at hand. Look at what Paul teaches about the meaning of the cross in Colossians chapter 2, verse 13 to 15. When you were dead in your sins and in the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made you alive with Christ. He forgave us all our sins, having canceled the charge of our legal indebtedness, which stood against us and condemned us. He has taken it away, nailing it to the cross. Now let's just pause there for a minute. The cross means forgiveness of our sins, of canceling our debt that was condemning us. And that explanation of the cross is the one that we're all familiar with, right? But then look at what else Paul says happened on the cross of Christ in verse 15. And having disarmed the powers and authorities, he made a public spectacle of them, triumphing over them by the cross. You see, what Paul is saying is that at that moment that Jesus died on a cross, God declared a victory over the dark, demonic forces that have held this world in bondage. Now, that victory is not complete yet. It won't be complete until Christ returns because we know there is still demonic activity. Even in the book of Acts, after the resurrection of Jesus, we still see some demonic activity. But what this gospel message is, is that something fundamental has been shattered in the spiritual realms through the death of Jesus Christ to set people free from that bondage of idolatry. And with that victory, what the gospel proclaims is that he is now, if we surrender our lives to him and put our trust in him, can recover that God-given image-bearing power in ourselves to live in the fullness of everything that God intended for us. And that's why in 2 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 18, it says, And we all, with unveiled faces, contemplate the Lord's glory, are being uh, transformed into his image with ever-increasing glory, which comes from the Lord, who is the Spirit. That is this restoring work that God is doing in his creation, not just getting you into heaven when you die. It is restoring what our idolatries had once robbed us of, to be full image bearers of God and reflect his character, his heart, his mission, his purpose, his will in our own lives by the way that we live in obedience to Christ of everything that he wants of us. And what does that image look like? Well, let me just close with this and I'll wrap up here. We find it in Luke chapter 22, verse 24 through 30. A dispute also arose among them as to which of them was considered to be greatest. Jesus said to them, the king of the Gentiles lorded over them. And those who exercise authority over them call themselves benefactors. But you are not to be like that. Instead, the greatest among you should be like the youngest, 
and the one who rules like the one who serves. For who is greater, the one who is at the table or the one who serves? Is it not the one who is at the table? But I am among you as one who serves. You are those who have stood by me in my trials, and I confer on you a kingdom, just as my father conferred one on me, so that you may eat and drink at my table in my kingdom and sit on thrones, judging the 12 tribes of Israel. What Jesus is saying is, as my disciples, I am giving you guys your kingdoms where you will rule with me in eternity. But know this, that even as my kingdom has already broken into the kingdoms of this world, what that ruling looks like is not the picture that you see in the world. It's not about you lording it over people and acting like you are the hotshot about you insisting on your ways and maneuvering and manipulating people to get what you want out of them. It is a life of servanthood and surrender and self-giving love. It is carrying our crosses in whatever realms of influence God has placed us to be able to love others as Christ has loved us. And that's what we are called to reflect as we think about this message of Christ restoring our image-bearing capacity of God in us. Where are the places that God has placed you in your life right now where he wants you to show your rule in that place by the way that you would show self-giving love that reflects the very love of Christ in a broken world? Let's pray. I'm just going to keep hammering this home to you guys until you get sick of hearing it. But the mission of God is not to figure out how to save you from hell and get you to heaven. That's just something we've been brainwashed in. We, we have somehow reduced the story of the gospel into that story. But when we actually let the Bible speak, when we actually let God speak through his own word, he tells a much real, richer, fuller story, doesn't he? that says that we were made as nothing less than to be image bearers of God who reflect the glory of God in our world. But he says that we have given ourselves to other gods that are actually not God, but evil, dark forces in the spiritual realms. But when Christ died on the cross, he bound Satan and he defeated these victory, had that victory over these forces of darkness. And through what Christ has done for us, he has now purchased for us the restoration of our calling as image bearers of God. And I think so many times we're so obsessed with what we are being saved from. We're being saved from going to hell and we're being saved from all of these bad things. But we don't talk enough in the church about what we are saved for. What we're saved for. We are saved for so much to enter into God's good creation as image bearers of God and let this world know that there is a God who loves them, who has made them and has died for them. And it is to go into every area of life, family life, personal life, work life, church life, and constantly be asking, 
What does God want to do in this situation? How does God want to use me to be a blessing to these people? We're going to come to the Lord's table at this time, and I want to invite you to take the elements. And yes, this bread and this cup invite us to look backward at what Jesus did 2,000 years ago on the cross. But he also taught his disciples, this Lord's table also looks ahead to the great day of joy when we will be at the wedding banquet of the Lamb and be celebrating in that feast with him. And so as we take from this bread and take from this cup today, I want you to understand what your glorious destiny is that awaits you. That one day, you and I, if we have put our trust in Christ, will rule with him for eternity in a restored earth for his glory. And so let me invite you to go ahead and take this bread and take this cup. And then would you just, uh, just meditate for a minute or two on these truths? And I will close this in a word of prayer. And then our worship team will come and close this in some closing songs.